Well, good morning, Connection Church. I hope you're doing well today. Uh, So excited that you are here this morning. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Billy. Uh, I get the privilege to be one of the pastors here, and that's a huge honor uh, for me to be able to serve you guys in that way. Uh, Today, uh, if this is your first time, we do want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, We want you to know that everything we do here is about one thing, centers around one mission, and that's we want to connect people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you never have to wonder what our motivation is in our time together with music, uh, in our kids' ministry, uh, whatever we're doing. uh, It's all about helping you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we care about. Uh, That's what we believe Christ cares about. And so uh, as we open God's word, I pray you'll remember that, and I hope that you will grow today in your relationship with the Lord. And so uh, before we get started, I have one big announcement uh, today. Uh, So in a few weeks, on June 3rd and June 4th, that's a Friday and Saturday, uh, we're going to be having really the one big event, a couple big events we do a year, but this is probably the biggest called our Connection Family Weekend. And so uh, the best way to explain it is it's kind of a vacation Bible school for kids, uh, a parenting conference, as well as a marriage conference, all kind of laced together into one on one Friday night and one Saturday uh, morning. It's going to be an awesome time. If you're a family in here, you have kids. If you don't have kids, uh, if you're married or you're interested in growing, please sign up for that. It's going to be an awesome time. Friday night, we're going to have a date night for our uh, fa- for our married couples over at Elements, and we're going to feed you and have some uh, conversation around marriage, as well as on Saturday morning, we're going to have some conversation uh, right here at STC around parenting and what it looks like to raise kids in a way that honors God. The kids are going to have an incredible time. Uh, it's going to be awesome. So you can sign up for that, and please sign up so we know how many to expect and how many to prepare for. Uh, on our website, uh, ccvidalia.com forward slash CFW, uh, as well as you can go on the app, you can go on Facebook, wherever, uh, to sign up. But please do that. Don't miss out. It will be an incredible time together. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13. Uh, 13 is where we'll be uh, this morning. Uh, If you've been here, you know we've been walking through this series called Be the Church, uh, where we've been studying uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Now, that may not mean much to you, but uh, the town of Corinth uh, was an actual city that Paul, uh, who the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, planted a church in, in the book of Acts. And so he uh, traveled around, and one of the things that Paul did was planted a lot of churches in different places, uh, hence why we love to plant churches in different places. Uh, But he would leave these places after he raised up leadership there. And he would uh, get word from them uh, a few years after, a few months after, and they would ask him about certain things and situations of, hey, we're dealing with this. How are we supposed to deal with this? They have these questions. We don't really know how to answer these questions. And so the letter of 1 Corinthians was Paul's first letter back to this church in Corinth uh, where there was a lot of stuff going on after he left. And so we've already covered a lot of that in the first half of 1 Corinthians, we've looked at divisions in the church and how do you handle uh, division in the church. We've also looked at sin in the church. Uh, we've looked at marriage and sexuality in the church. Uh, we've, we've started now, since chapter 11, uh, Paul's beginning to talk about their worship gathering. So when they gather together uh, as a church family, uh, there were some things that he wanted to correct in there. A few of those were uh, the way men and women were, were in, uh, operating in the church. What, what, how are they supposed to do that? We looked at that. Uh, we've looked at uh, the Lord's Supper, how that should be practiced as, as a church and how we should prepare for that. And so now, last week, we talked about spiritual gifts. And so Paul, uh, <clears throat> really the word he used was he wanted them to be informed about how the Holy Spirit operates in us and in the church as we meet together, uh, specifically how he gives us gifts uh, to help us encourage one another uh, in the church. And so we talked about that in chapter 12, and now in chapter 13, he's gonna move into uh, continuing to talk about spiritual gifts, but now he's gonna talk a little bit about love and how our church and, and the Corinthian church, love is the foundation for all things, including the operation 
of spiritual gifts. If you don't have love, you don't have anything. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump right in. We're going to start uh, back up in 12, uh, verse 27. So let's pray. Father, uh, you are so good to us. Uh, God, your grace uh, is so sufficient, Lord, not only to save us, but to sustain us, and God, to grow us. So Lord, as we dig into your word uh, this morning, uh, which is your word, God, you, you wrote it. It is your breath, your word. Lord, I pray that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, God would um, open our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds to understand it, uh, but not only understand it, but to apply it to our lives, uh, Lord, in a way that makes us more like you. That's our prayer. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 12, verse 27, Paul starts this way. He says, now... You are the body of Christ, and each one of you are a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, then gifts of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. And then he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? The answer to that would be no. He's showing that there's diversity. Verse 31, now he says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And so we know Paul from chapter 12 has been teaching the Corinthians about God's design for his church, and he compared it to a human body. So he said the body of Christ is a lot like a human body. There's one head, uh, there's kind of one uh, center of control, which is God himself. That's why the Holy Spirit indwells in all believers. God uh, is the, the director, he's the captain of the ship. We're trying to align with him. But he says, as believers that make up a local church, we all have different gifts given to us by God through the power of the Holy Spirit to operate together as one big team. And he says uh, that there's a diversity of gifts. So one person is the hand, one person is the leg, the foot, the arm, all of these uh, work together for one purpose, and that purpose is to build up the body of Christ, to encourage other believers, to help other believers grow and be built up in love and in unity and in maturity. And that's how the church is, operate, is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be about one person with one gift. It should be a family of people uh, that all utilize the spiritual gifts that God has given them to help one another uh, grow. Every person has a purpose. You should have seen that on blue shirts as you walked in. That's why we say that all the time because we believe if you're a Christian, you have been gifted to be a part of building up the body of Christ. So that's what Paul ends chapter 12 telling the Corinthians to eagerly desire these greater uh, gifts, but before he jumps into the greater gifts in chapter uh, fourteen, uh, he 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 wants to talk about the most excellent way to practice these spiritual gifts, and so it's almost like he uh, gives a quick disclaimer or a side note where he wants to talk about the way of love, and because remember uh, th there was a problem in Corinth that Paul was trying to correct. Uh, they had asked some questions about spiritual gifts. Paul had heard some things about how spiritual gifts were operating in Corinth, and so he was aiming to correct them. The Corinthians were using their spiritual gifts uh, for show instead of service. What do I mean by show? Instead of using spiritual gifts to bless others and to encourage others and build up the faith of others, they were using gifts to selfishly boast about themselves and the gift that they had, which is the opposite of what they were given for. So they believed that their spiritual gifts set them apart from others and made them spiritually superior to others. Uh, and so many of you maybe have grown up in churches or been a part of churches where if you had this gift and another person had this gift, then they were better than you. Uh, and so many people would even come here, and I've never said this, hopefully you've never even thought this, but you would say, okay, well, Billy's preaching from the stage. He has the spiritual gift of teaching, so he's better than me. That is a false statement. That is not how God would view our gathering together. He would say, no, 
Billy has the gift of teaching. The word of God is central in that. This is not about Billy. This is about him teaching the word of God to edify the body so that we can go out and live and be more like Christ. And so that's how God wants us to view it, is we are a team that work together, all utilizing our gifts in that. So we see that uh, Paul wants to make it very clear that unless spiritual gifts are motivated by love and service to other people, uh, that they are worthless to God and to God's church. And so that's what he's about to make clear. Listen to verse one. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or in the tongues of angels, but I do not have love, then I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I don't know what you know about a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, uh, but my wife and I made the mistake of buying my son a, a set of drums for Christmas this year. And uh, when he gets in there, uh, he loves to hit the cymbals. And anything else going on in the house when he's hitting the cymbals is no longer an option because you can't hear anything. You're completely frustrated the whole time because he don't know what he's doing, but he loves it. And so you're sitting there. And he says, literally, when we're operating... In our spiritual gifts without love, that's what it's like. It's the most excruciating, just painful, annoying thing that you could ever imagine. And I think that's what he came up with there. Paul maybe has some experience with us like we did. Uh, verse two, if I have a gift of prophecy and I can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, then I am nothing. Those are bold statements now. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, then I gain nothing. So Paul's list here, I don't know if you noticed, but is very, very impressive. I mean, he's talking about people that are operating in a spiritual gift, a supernatural gift of speaking in tongues even the tongues of angels. These are people that are conversating with angels. I've personally never done that. I don't know if you have, but that's a big deal. That's like varsity level spiritual gifts. That means you, uh, God's given you the ability to speak in languages with angels and with other people. He goes on to say, if I have great prophetic powers, prophetic powers would mean you pretty much have a direct line of communication with God where he gives you the ability to perceive what's going on in a person's life and speak his word into that uh, operation. He says, if a person understands all mysteries, I mean, I say all mysteries and all knowledge, the deepest things of the faith, the most knowledgeable person that you could imagine, ready to explain anything about the depths of our faith. He says, if I have the faith that can move mountains, the most radical faith person imaginable, a person that's all in with God, a person that literally says that has delivered up their body to be burned, literally become a martyr, a missionary that's willing to sacrifice everything, leave the comforts of their life, and go to a place where probably death awaits them when they get there. He says, if that person willing to sacrifice that much, that talented, that gifted, and they operate and they do what they do without love, he says they are useless to the kingdom of God. I mean, that is a bold, bold statement. That means that in God's eyes, love is huge. It is incredible, and it should be the foundation of everything that we do. All of these gifts without love, the Bible says, is useless. The most impressive speech, the most impressive faith, the most impressive personal sacrifices without love equal nothing. The most impressive speaker with love is without love is like a little child just banging on drums and cymbals repeatedly, chaotically, and loudly. This is, this, this is literally the only way, think about it like this. Why does God give us spiritual gifts? Like we learned this last week, but let me refresh. Last week we learned that God gifts us, all of us, with different gifts to serve other people for the purpose of building up his church. And so the spiritual gifts, none of them are about me or us, right? So you're not giving a spiritual gift for your good. It's given for the good of other people. And that's what Paul understands. And so they aren't for show, they're for service to other people. 
But when we are operating in sin, the best way to understand sin is the middle letter. What's the middle letter of sin? I. So when we operate in sin, even as a Christian, we still struggle with sin. If you're not saved, then your whole life is sin. But if, if you're a Christian and you struggle with sin, what would a sinful person, a person that's operating uh, in the about I or everything's about me, do with a spiritual gift given from God? They would make it about themselves. And instead of serving other people, they would turn it around and make it about themselves. Look at me. I have this gift. It makes me better than you. Don't you wish you had my gift? You don't have my gift, and you're not a good. You're second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. And so that is what has happened in Corinth. And ultimately, uh, religious things that are done with selfish motivations dishonor God they hurt the church, and they hinder the mission of God from moving forward. And so God is not only concerned with what we are doing as a Christian, he's concerned with the heart in which it's done with. And primarily here, he's saying the heart matters more. And so if we're doing things for God, but our motivations are not out of love for God and love for other people, he says we're going to do more harm than we're going to do anything else. But when love is the foundation of our lives, spiritual gifts will flourish in our lives because they'll be used for the right purposes. The church will flourish because we'll love one another and press in and help other people grow. And the mission of God will flourish in the world because the spiritual gifts will do what God intended them to do, which is to love others and build up their faith. And God doesn't just want love to be a defining characteristic of the church and of your life. He wants it to be the defining characteristic of your life and the life of our church. So the question then becomes, well, Billy, what kind of love are you talking about? What does this love look like? Glad you asked. Verse four, Paul gives us his definition here. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, this is probably a familiar passage to most of us in this room. It's an incredible passage, one of the best in the entire Bible. But most of the time, it's read at a wedding. And the primary context of the scripture is not a wedding. The primary context of the scripture is how we should love one another as the church. Like our relationships with one another is what Paul is intending here. And he gives us 16 action verbs to define love. So what should we get from that? This is Paul's 16-point sermon on love. Praise God, I don't have 16 points for you this morning, but Paul does. So Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that godly love is a choice. It is a action. It is a verb, not a feeling. That's why he uses action verbs. That means that no matter how we feel as a Christian, this is the love that God has called us to, and it's a choice. So he says love is patient and kind. Let's just talk about it. Patience means that we expect others not to be perfect. Like when we're patient with a person, we love them through their imperfections. That's what it means is to uh, literally walk patiently beside a person knowing that some of their life is not going to be perfect. And then he says we need to love is kind. Kind means considerate, meaning we consider others before ourselves. This is a huge thing. He says love does not envy. To envy means that you, you don't rejoice. Uh, you, you, you can rejoice when something good happens to someone else. It means that you're not constantly comparing yourself to others and wanting what they want. 
We can look at our life and say, man, when, when someone else gets that house that maybe we felt like we needed or the car that we wanted or uh, their son or daughter gets accolades or gets celebrated or God blesses them in a different way, what comes in our hearts? Can we celebrate with them or are we mad because it didn't happen to us? Paul says love does not envy. It does not envy. It rejoices with someone else's blessings. Love does not boast. It is not proud. Not boastful and proud, meaning you're not all about yourself. It's not a puffed up or bragging type of love. You're not entitled and always focused on your right and getting your way and what you deserve all the time. It's, 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 it's focused on others. You can see it clearly. Love does not dishonor others. Not dishonoring others, meaning we're not rude to other people. Uh, love doesn't dishonor a person by using them as a means to their own gain. You understand what I'm saying? Like this is the type of love that our world is characterized by is we like to love people but only for what they can give us. But God says we don't love people as a means to our end. We love people and that is the end. Like this is what God has called us to do. He says, love is not self-seeking. This is a big one. Not self-seeking, meaning you don't insist on your own way. The very idea of loving another is denying yourself to love other people. Like, that's what it means to sacrifice of your own for the sake of other people. This is a big one. Most marriage problems in this room today stem from us being more concerned with our own needs than the needs of our spouse. And that'll preach. I could preach a whole sermon on that. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to myself because I know most of the issues in my own marriage come when I'm more worried about me than I'm worried about serving Kate. And that's, the, that's how marriage issues usually work. He says love is not easily angered. Not easily angered meaning love is not irritable. It's not easily triggered because self-centeredness, listen, sees the world through a lens of what it needs and what it wants. And it's quick to anger when it doesn't get its desires fulfilled. And that's what happens is that anger overflows. But love, on the opposite hand, doesn't think through this lens. It is more patient uh, when, when it's frustrated or it receives some sort of disappointment or things doesn't go towards its plan because it's not all about itself. Next, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. This is huge. Keep, uh, keeping no records of wrongs, meaning you, you don't resent people for past mistakes. When someone hurts or disappoints you, you don't drag up all the previous ways that they've let you down. Because what happens when we do that is our life is filled with bitterness. And that bitterness just sits inside of us and just soaks in until we just basically become a cynical, old, mad person that don't like anybody. Because hurt people hurt other people. Like, that's what happens. That's the, the end result of it. And so, but God has given us the opportunity and the invitation to give him our hurts and to not walk under the burden of bitterness and to not let other people control us with the wrongs that they've done to us, but to forgive them and walk in the freedom that Christ has created for us to, to, to live in. He says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. This is another good one. Love never delights when someone else is struggling. And it cares enough to speak up when a friend is doing something that will hurt them or that's gonna lead them to destruction. Love cares enough to have the loving conversation even when it's uncomfortable and even when it's difficult. Because listen, fake love doesn't ever care enough to confront uh, a person because it's, it loves its own comfort more than it loves the well-being of another person. And so part of loving people is not just going along with them, like in the church, if we love people and we see them leading and walking towards something that's gonna destroy them, how can we love them and not say, hey, brother, listen, sister, I've, I've been there. I know where this is leading and it's not somewhere that you wanna go and I love you, so I wanted to tell you before you go there, can I help you? Can I pray for you? What can we do to, to walk the other way from this? 
And then lastly, he says, love protects, love trusts, love hopes, love perseveres, and this love never fails. You see, godly love is persistent. It is trustworthy. It is long-suffering. It endures for the sake of the gospel. It never gives up on a person. It wants others to flourish. It never just sees a person as they are. It sees a person and believes in who they can become in Christ. And it sees in them what Christ wants for their life. And it operates in that. And Paul says this type of love, this agape love that the Bible gives us, unconditional love, this Jesus love, this Christ-like love, he says that type of love never fails. It never fails. Verse eight, he goes on, he says, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Verse 11, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, for now we see only a reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And so you see what Paul's doing here. Paul is contrasting the present age that he was in here with the age to come. So he's kind of contrasting uh, us on earth now before the return of Christ, before we see Christ face to face, and now when we can't see uh, Christ face to face. And what he says is there will be a time where spiritual gifts are not needed anymore. Like there will be no prophecy, there will be no tongues because we'll be face to face with Christ. We won't need those gifts anymore. And then he goes on to explain something very interesting. He says, he wants us to know that love is superior to spiritual gifts because love will never end. Like even after the gifts go away, when we're face to face with Christ, love will always be the defining characteristic of the kingdom of God. And we don't even know it because we live in a world that's so marred by sin right now that we, want, we can't even fathom what it will be like to live in a world, in a heaven, in a heaven on earth where literally everybody operates in the perfect love of God and loves each other the way Christ loves us. I mean, what a, what a day that's going to be. And Paul says at this point in the history of salvation, what we know is only partial and what we prophesy is only partial. But that partial understanding will pass away when completeness comes. Now there's a lot of people that teach this scripture and would say, Prophecy and tongues, those gifts are no longer in operation because the Bible says that there's a time where they'll cease at completeness. But if you read the scripture in the context, it's very, very clear that when the Bible says completeness, it's talking about when we come face to face with Christ. And so that moment has not happened yet. So we at this church believe all the gifts are still in operation and that's why we do. And then Paul goes on to say, our knowledge now is like a child, and our knowledge later will be like an adult. Oh my gosh, think about the application of this. The most mature Christian in this room, what Paul's saying, on this side of heaven, your maturity is, will always be like a child compared to the maturity that you'll receive when we, when we see Christ face to face. It's an incredible picture of what he's saying. Now we indirectly see a reflection, but later we will see Jesus face to face. You see, sin hinders us from knowing more fully now, but later sin will be eradicated and we will be able to see things as they are. The best example I know to compare it to is like a flashlight in a darkness. Right now, we get a partial glimpse of the kingdom of God from, from time to time. I mean, you may be in a moment where, man, you're in a small group, God's just moving, everybody's loving each other. You may be at a worship service where the gospel's presented and you're just like, man, this feels like heaven. But, it, but it's, a, it's a glimpse. And then you walk back into the real world 
You go eat lunch and somebody's cussing out the cashier because of this. So it's like, God, I was in heaven now. Where am I at now? You know, so you, you get these glimpses from time to time. It's like walking outside with a flashlight in pitch black darkness. But when we see Christ, it's gonna be like walking outside in the, in the, in the noon of day and literally you can see everything the way things were supposed to be. And Paul says that's what it's gonna be like when we come face to face with Christ is we'll have full revelation of who God is, of, of everything the kingdom of God is supposed to be because we'll be there, we'll be in the midst of that. Verse 13, he goes on to say, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. He's still trying to prove his point of the greatness of love. 14 verse one, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. So again, Paul wants us to see that love is superior. That's his whole point of chapter 13. It's even superior to faith and hope the, because the qualities of faith, which means to trust God when we can't see him, and hope, which means to confidently expect God to do what he has promised to do, those faith and hope are temporary because when we're with Christ, faith and hope won't be necessary anymore because we'll see him. We, we won't know in part or we won't walk by faith. We'll walk by sight because we can see him. So love is superior because it never ends. There will come a time where hope and faith will not be necessary, but love will remain forever. And so Paul says, because of that, in the kingdom of God, which we are in now and we're experiencing it partially, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. And so next week, we're gonna talk a little bit more about the spiritual gifts, but today I wanna focus in on this following the way of love because what Paul is saying is if love is not the foundation of everything we do as God's church, we are nothing, like we are nothing. Like it is so important, it is so superior, it is, it is the priority of the church. And so I wanna show you three things uh, to end our time together and just remind you of and kind of organize what Paul's saying in a way that maybe you can take away from here. The first is this. I want you to see the greatness of love. Paul shows us the greatness of love. He wants love to be a priority. He sees it as superior. He wants it to be the defining characteristic of the church. Secondly, I wanna show you the definition of love. I wanna really beat that in uh, into our minds so that we understand the difference between worldly love and godly love. Paul gives us a beautiful, convicting uh, definition of love that should lead us to depend on the Holy Spirit because we can't achieve this type of love on our own, which is number three, the source of love. Jesus is our example. The Spirit brings the power for this to happen in our life. So let's go. Number one, greatness of love. Again, verses one through three, it says this, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels and do not have love, then I am a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, then I gain nothing. So we see clearly, Paul is saying without love, the church does not operate the way it's supposed to. Paul wants the defining characteristic of the Corinthian church to be love. Paul and, every, and God wants the defining church, uh, the defining characteristic of Connection Church to be love. And so what has happened in Corinth is they've allowed the gifts to become more important than love and service to one another. And when that happens, it's not good. Because of that, Paul said earlier in this book, it is worse when y'all gather together. Like the gift of the church is that when we come together, we encourage each other. Like, like we love one another. You, you leave Sunday mornings encouraged to go and be Christ to the world around you. And he says in Corinth, when you gather together, it's worse. People are worse off from coming to your gathering. That's the biggest insult probably in the Bible to a church in that. Because when they gather together, their meetings are full of sin and division and pride and racism and arrogance and disunity and selfishness. And because it's full of sin, what happens is instead of people being built up, People leave discouraged, and people leave 
following different teachings that are not true. And instead of experiencing Christ, when the believers gather together, they're experiencing the world. And the world will beat you down. And ultimately, God's not being glorified in the church of Corinth because of that. And so throughout Scripture, Paul uses love as a measure, not a measure, but the measure of maturity in the church. If you read all throughout the scriptures, you see Ephesians 4, the goal of spiritual gifts is to build the body of Christ up in love, unity, and maturity. So he equates love with maturity. A church that reflects Jesus is a church that is characterized by love. So if somebody tells you, man, yeah, I'm, I'm a mature believer, but your experience with that person is not uh, just very, very distinctly similar to the Christ that you read about in the Bible, then, then they're missing something. And listen to me, there are a lot of Christians that have been in church for a long time that have been saved since they were 12 that when you experience them and you hang out with them, what you get is not a picture of Christ. You get a person that all they wanna tell you about is everything wrong with the world. And Jesus didn't just tell you what was wrong with the world, he went and fixed it. Like he did something, he loved, he made an impact on people. He was not of the world, but he lived in the world and he was effective at reaching people in the world. And we see this characteristic as the mark that Paul wants the Corinthians to be defined by. Even Jesus himself in John 13 told his disciples, they will know you by your love for one another. Like so Jesus wants this to be our defining characteristic. There's a reason why Paul put this chapter in the midst of his discussion on spiritual gifts. Paul wants the Corinthians to remember that giftedness is not the measure of maturity and effectiveness. Love is. Like you can be the most gifted church in the world, have the best preacher, the best music, have the best kids ministry. You can have the most welcoming group of people. You can have small groups that are just dynamic and all these things are happening. But if you don't love each other, Paul says it's nothing. It's not effective. It's meaningless. Go home. And so we see this as an important thing in the Bible and to Paul and to God. This is why Jesus says there's two great commandments. If you can just do these two things, everything I've ever written in the law can be summed up in these things. Love God and love others. It's, it's as simple as that. Listen, we complicate this thing. God says, just, just love God, love me, and love others. And with all that, everything will fall into place. And so write this down. If you haven't gotten it yet, love is not a characteristic of God's church. It is the defining characteristic of God's church. And we, as God's church, it should be the defining characteristic of our lives. So the definition of love is number two. So it gives us this definition, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth, love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres, love never fails. Think with me for a second about the world's definition of love. Is that, does that sound like the world's definition of love? Absolutely not. In the world's definition of love, there's always a clause. There's always a disclaimer. There's always an exception. Like, I love this person. I'll be patient with them unless they do this. I'll be kind to this person unless they do this. I won't keep a record of wrongs for this person unless they hurt me this way and then I'm gonna throw it up in their face because it makes me feel better. Like this is what the world tells you to do. And listen, some of us are in situations where what we need to be attempting to do through the power of the Spirit in us is love another person this way, but what we're receiving is advice from the world. You hear me? And people are telling you, hey, you shouldn't love them that way, man. They've done this to you. Like their record's up, three strikes, they're done, you're done. And here's Jesus saying, man, if I would have taken that philosophy with you, you wouldn't be saved. And so God's given us a different definition of love. And for some of us in this room, 
our definition of love has been shaped more by the world than it has been by God's word. And I'm telling you today, as a Christian, we can't allow the world's definition of love to shape our definition of love. We must allow the word of God to shape our definition of love so that then, then through the power of the spirit, we can attempt to walk as Jesus walked. You see, worldly love is self-seeking. Worldly love is feelings-based. It's, it's if I feel this. It's all about emotions. If you don't feel something, then it's not true love. But this is not feelings-based. This is choice. Worldly love is contractual. I'll love this person if they do this in return. But God's love isn't that way. It's covenant. He set his love on us, and despite our sinfulness, God loved us and demonstrated his love by sending his son to die on a cross for us. This is the love of God. Worldly love is about tolerance. I don't have to like this person. I just have to tolerate this person. Is that how Jesus treated us? No, he adopted us into his family. He don't just tolerate us. He says, no, you come and be a part of me. Share in this Trinitarian experience and be reconciled through Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit to be in fellowship with us. Like this is the picture of God's love. Does that sound like the world? No. And then in verse four through eight, Paul gives us a biblical definition of his love. And here is the cool thing about it. Love is not best explained through a definition on paper. It's best explained through a person. And not only did, they give us, did, did God give us a definition of his love, but he sent someone named Christ to display this love for us to see. And so as you read this definition, a lot of people plug your name in it, and there's nothing wrong with that. You can do that. But I want you to just see how Christ displayed this love for us and for his people. Jesus was patient. His disciples dispersed when he was arrested. Do you remember that when Jesus went to the cross? He, he didn't go to the cross with like an army of people with him. These 12 had decided they were going to follow him. We're with you, Jesus. We're ready. Let's do this together. Boom, he gets arrested. What happens? Phew! They're gone. They're asleep while he's praying about what God's about to do in his life. And so he goes to the cross isolated, abandoned, betrayed. But when he resurrected, where did he go? He went to find his disciples. He didn't give up on them. He was patient with them. Jesus was kind. Think about it. The woman caught in adultery in John 8. Everybody else was trying to stone her. And by law, she deserved to be stoned for what she had done. But Jesus walks up, and what does he do? He sets a new standard. He was kind to her. And he sent everybody home. And he says, he who is without sin, you guys throw the first stone. Everybody leaves one by one. And then Jesus says, go and sin no more. He was kind to her. It was his kindness that drew her to repentance. It wasn't him telling her everything that was wrong about her. She knew that. And he was kind. Jesus was not envious. Think about Jesus in the wilderness when Satan tempted him. What did he tempt him with? Stuff. Hey, you want to lead this kingdom? Hey, you want this? I bet God will do this. I bet God will do all these things. But what did you, Jesus knew who he was, and he knew what the Father had promised him, and he, it was, he was completely content with that. He didn't need anything the world had to offer. And so Satan's tricks didn't work on him because he wasn't envious. Jesus did not boast. He had every reason to boast, but Philippians 2 said he humbled himself. Jesus wasn't proud. Think about his birth. Jesus was born in a barn, in a manger, as the king of the world. Jesus didn't dishonor others. He was not self-seeking. Over and over, Jesus prayed, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. He was not easily angered. Think about it. When Judas came and betrayed Jesus with a kiss, compare Peter's reaction to Jesus' reaction. Peter cuts the dude's ear off. He's like, you ain't messing with my dude. And what does Jesus do? 
He patiently says, boom, get your ear back. Peter, get behind me. This is the Father's will. Here I go. It was just a difference in the way that he loved people. He kept no record of wrongs. He didn't count the disciples' wrongs against him. He did not delight in evil. He rejoiced with the truth. He never bought into the evil schemes. He constantly pointed out the truth of the situation. This is the type of love that God wants our church to be characterized by. This is the type of love that God wants our lives to be characterized by. When we're at home, certainly this can apply into our marriage with our kids. This is the type of love that we want them to see in us. When we're at the ball field with, with other people, with Christians that are their only view of Christ that they'll ever get is with you. This is the type of love that God wants us to display to them. When we're in the workplace, and there's people in our workplace that the only picture of Christ that they'll ever see is you and the Holy Spirit at work in your life. This is the type of love that God wants us to display. Because remember, love isn't best understood by a definition with words. It's best experienced through a relationship. So it makes sense that God would send Christ to us as a person in relationship to show us love and now through the power of his spirit at work in us, he's sending us out to the world, not with a definition of love to proclaim, but with a model for love to proclaim in the way we live our life and then saying, this is why we live the way we live because he first loved me. This is what he's doing. This is what God wants for his church. This is why God sent Jesus. This is why God has given us his church. And listen, there's, there's, no, more pa there's no passage in scripture that's more convicting than this one. Like, I, don't, I don't know if you guys read it like I do, but when you read the Bible and give it the ability and the authority in your life to correct you, to rebuke you, to teach you and to train you, it starts to do some stuff in here. And you start reading this definition of love, and I know for me, the first thing I think is, that's not, I'm not like that. I, I, need, I need more of that. I need more of that in my life. I need more of that in my marriage. As a pastor, I, I want to do that more. And as we begin to, to wrestle with this, it should lead us to a place of, God, I can't do this on my own which is what number three is all about, the source of love. You and I cannot create this type of love within ourselves. This definition of love is meant to lead us to a place of dependence. This type of love only comes from two things. It comes from an experience with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it comes from the Spirit of God at work in our lives. It's the only place it flows from. It's not gonna come from attending church enough it's not even gonna come from, from being perfect on your Bible reading plan. It's not gonna come from pulling your bootstraps up and just trying to persevere in loving a person because you know God told you to do it. It's gonna come from you falling on your knees and saying, God, I need you to help me. Help me love my wife. Help me love my husband. Help me love this person at my workplace. Help me love this brother or sister that has wronged me in the past. God, give me your heart to love people. Give me your eyes to see people. And when we begin to think about God's love for us and we begin to reciprocate that love through other people, it's literally, John 15 says it's like uh, vine and branches. When the branches are plugged into the vine, uh, the, the source of life flows out from them. As a Christian, when we're plugged into Christ, in our relationship with Christ, we are a conduit of his love. His love just flows from us naturally. This is what the Spirit of God is all about. This is what Galatians 5 says, literally, the fruit of the Spirit. What's the first one? Love. And when we're plugged into God, we're walking with God, spending time with God, allowing God to correct us, allowing God to work in our hearts. The natural overflow, the fruit of our lives, begins to be Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. What does that sound like? Love is what? Patient. Love is kind. So Jesus has got this thing set up. And the next step for us is we gotta plug into the vine. 
And we gotta allow the work of God, the love of God to begin to work in our hearts. So I don't know where you came in this morning and I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know where this message falls on you. Maybe you're in a situation where you're struggling to love somebody that's hard to love. Maybe you're in a situation where you didn't know God's love for you was this. You thought God had given up on you. You thought God had a record of wrongs against you. And this morning, would you allow the gospel, which is the story of God's love, to as Romans 5, 5 says, fill your heart with the love of God. That's what the Spirit of God does. So you're here and you say, Billy, I don't have a relationship with God. I've never... I've never asked God to do a work in my life, but you'd say today's the day that you want God to do that. Listen, his invitation is before you. All he says is, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, believe and repent, turn from sin, turn from living for yourself, and turn to me, lay your life at my feet, and I'll transform it. I'll fill you with my spirit, and my spirit will transform your life forever. Maybe that's you. If you're in this room and that's you, today's the day of salvation in your life. But listen, if you're in this room and you're a Christian and you're honest with yourself, you know as you read this definition, there's some areas in your life right now where you need to lay before God and say, God, I need your help. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. I don't know where you're at. You'd say, you're in this room and today's the day of salvation. You'd say, Billy, that's today for me. And you wanna surrender your life to Christ. I'm gonna ask you to be bold. If you're in this room, I just want you to lift your hand. I wanna pray for you. Anybody in this room, you'd say, Billy, that's me. Today's the day. I wanna give my life to Jesus. I wanna experience this love personally for the first time. Give you a second. Anybody else? So God, here's my prayer. Lord, in this room full of believers, God, would you do a work in our heart that produces your love in us? And God, in response to our view of your love for us, God, would we live a life of love, of patience, of kindness, keeping no record of wrongs. God, not rejoicing in evil, but rejoicing with the truth. And God, would we be a people that displays this love to our world. So God, would you work in our hearts this morning? We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Would you stand and sing?